0: back to the Napoleon show David Markham I believe we're at episode number 10 already how time flies my friend
1: well uh, thank you uh, there are some who would say yes Time flies are already at 10 and i suppose there's some out there who say my god it took them forever to get there so yeah, it's all a matter of perspective but uh we, we've been getting some some very nice feedback and and we're certainly enjoying it and we're always gratified to hear that other folks out there are are gaining some entertainment and some knowledge and so forth from from our efforts and uh, it's good to be back with you again uh, cameron
0: yeah thank you sincerely thank you to everyone who's provided us with feedback um on the show it it really does warm the cockles of our heart to know that you're enjoying it as much as we are if you weren't we'd be doing it anyway but uh it's good to know that people are getting value out of the show now when we left napoleon last time this is going to be a short show david isn't it this is the short show
1: you know, I, I think we have made that promise uh, on more than one occasion, Cameron. And, and in all honesty, uh, I'm not sure. I noticed in one of your postings that that you indicated that uh, without some kind of restraint, we might go on and on and on, and might still be talking from the last time. And and I, I fear you may have some some credibility to that uh, statement. I also want to, while we're on the subject of postings, and before we get into. To our discussion topic this evening, and, and yes, we will try to make it relatively short. Uh, Ken Roberts uh posted uh, something uh, Ken Richards I'm sorry, posted something on the web uh, that that really intrigues me and, and and Cameron, you and I had actually talked a little bit about the possibility once before, and that is to organize some kind of a Napoleonic conference, a history conference uh, in, in Australia. For those of you who aren't aware, uh, Cameron uh, lives in Australia. I live on the west coast of the United States, so we're fairly uh, far away apart. But there's a lot of interest in Napoleon. Uh, there's actually in the, an Australian Napoleonic Society that I used to, to belong to some years ago, uh, and I've organized conferences in Europe. And, and Ken suggested, and I think it's a wonderful idea, uh, that we uh, – try to organize perhaps for the summer of 2008 a Napoleon History Conference with uh, people coming to present papers and discussions and, and have a lot of fun and meet people who share our obsession. And uh, if you folks are interested in that out there, uh, drop us a line on on the website uh, and, and let us know, and, and better yet, volunteer uh, somewhere that you can uh, help become a part of it.
0: Of course, anyone listening to this show after... 2008 because this show will be up forever. sorry you missed out but um.
1: and it was a wonderful event it's a darn <laughs> shame you didn't get there
0: <laughs> Now um, when we when we left our good friend and mentor Napoleon, your friend and mine yes uh in in episode nine for those of you who missed it uh and if this is your first show we we talked a lot in episode nine about a lot of the domestic things that napoleon took care of when he became the first consul of france a lot of things he did around the legal system the education system how he brought back the people that had left france during the revolution um he uh did a concordate with the Catholic Church, allowed the Church back in. We didn't talk a lot about that, but it's something we should devote some time to during um, one of our upcoming episodes.
1: I think you're right. We will. That's, that's uh, worthy of, of a good portion of an episode in itself.
0: But what we want to talk about today is what happened militarily <coughs> after Napoleon became first consul in November 1799. So, as I'm sure listeners who have been following our progress over the last nine episodes will recall, before Napoleon became First Consul, he had uh, fought a series of very successful battles on behalf of France against their opponents throughout Europe and then into Egypt as well. But, you know, he, he had fought a successful series of battles as a general, um, of the Republic of France. He had fought a series of battles against the Austrians, the Prussians, the Russians throughout uh, Europe. And unfortunately, when he went to Egypt and other generals were placed in command and they had the directory to deal with, there was uh, uh, some backsliding. And I think we mentioned this briefly during our last episode. They lost a lot of ground. And uh, now that he's in the, the big seat. The first thing that he did was try to make peace isn't that right David sure Uh,
1: I mean Napoleon understands that the the people of France don't really want to be in perpetual war the people of Europe don't really want to be in perpetual war Uh, he's taken power as this bright uh, hope for the future which which he was and the first thing he wants to do is to consolidate his uh, position and, and he really would like to consolidate it by proving himself to be a really outstanding ruler. So he makes, as I believe we may have mentioned last time, he, 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 he makes contact or tries to make contact uh, with his European opponents, uh, with, with Great Britain. But their response essentially is, well, we'll be happy to have peace with you as soon as a uh, Bourbon king is restored to the throne. Uh, we want you to forget about the revolution. We want you to forget about your own little coup d'état. That's all very nice, but you know, if you really want peace, uh, bring bring a Louis back onto the throne.
0: Uh, bring now, let, Louis
1: let, the Eighteenth.
0: Let, let me stop you there because I, I want to get your insight into why this is so. What do you think the motivation of King George the King George the I think it was in England at the time. Was it with William Pitt as his prime minister? Roundabout now, well, I'm yeah, I'm, the, this up, I'm guessing, but I think that's who. It
1: was. <laughs> well, the, the the motivation is is probably twofold. Uh, first of all, there's a, a real uh, fear on the part of the powers that be, particularly on the continent, but to some extent also uh, in 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 Great Britain, that the ideas. Of the French Revolution might still spread. That if France is allowed to sort of become a symbol of what you can gain if you toss out the old regimes, the ancien regimes, the emperors and the kings, and put in a republic uh, with a, a bright young leader uh, who's very, very successful, uh, this, this could uh, give the people of Austria, the people of Prussia, the people of uh, Spain, and so on, ideas. So that's, that's, that's one thing. The other thing is more related to, to Great Britain, I think. And that is this age-old concept that the British had uh, of, of a balance of power on the continent. They really feared any one country becoming too strong and i think even in this very early stage they saw at least a possibility that a france under someone is 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 obviously talented as napoleon could threaten uh that balance of power he he really hadn't yet at that point clearly uh but i think that they feared that he might so you, you you put that together with their desire, the British desire to to maintain the the old order, uh, and 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 I think you have the two primary reasons uh, why they wouldn't just let the French uh, have whatever government they wanted to, and that's what we always have to remember here. You know, this is this is people on the outside who are constantly trying to dictate to France exactly who their government should be. They believe they know who the, the rightful uh, government of France is, the Bourbons, of course. Uh, they, they, they think they have the right, in essence, to force France to have leaders that they, the other uh, powers of, of Europe think is appropriate. And and that's really kind of bizarre when you think about it, but that's the, the bottom line, the, 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 the basic cause of the so-called Napoleonic Wars was the fact that the, Europe was just simply never willing to accept Napoleon. Which is not to say Napoleon didn't ever make any mistakes or didn't get too aggressive or maybe could have done this or that or the other thing. No person is perfect, but the underlying cause of everything we're talking about is, is European refusal to accept first the French Revolution and then Napoleon?
0: And I've always suspected that there might have been other uh, less public economic reasons for Britain's willingness to fund this continual warfare in Europe. Obviously, the uh, Bourbons, after they evacuated, the ones that survived, after they, because it was Louis Sixteenth who was guillotined at the uh you know late stages of the revolution and then the future louis the 18th went to england didn't he
1: well sure uh louis uh, went his brother went uh, they were put up uh in in very very <clears throat> fine style uh, when i was in uh Edinburgh, uh, Scotland, I, I went this past summer, I went to uh, Holyrood, palace, and saw the enormous luxury in which, uh, I, I think it was uh, Louis' brother, actually, the Comte d'Artois, who, who was put there, uh, living in just splendor, I mean, you wonder why you'd ever want to go back uh to to uh, France, uh, except of course the Versailles is even more uh, splendorous. Uh, but yeah, the, the 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 British took good care of the uh, royal family in exile, which I think, by the way, to skip way ahead of ourselves, is at least a little bit of the reason why Napoleon thought in 1815 when he finally decides after Waterloo to surrender to the uh, to the British. That that might be a good idea, that maybe he was going to be treated as an uh, expatriate uh, former ruler uh, like the Bourbons were. And of course, I think, un- unfortunately, we all know that that's not the way it worked out.
0: And y- you can imagine that <laughs> if you're the king of England and you have the perhaps future king of France exiled in your country that you would sit down to each other and discuss terms for regime change. Uh, You know, as we see in the modern day sense with certain countries that shall remain nameless because I don't want to get cavity searched the next time I'm going through LAX. But (laughs) you have certain people that are exiled from their country because they are not favourable to the current administration go to a very powerful military nation and say, look, go get rid of that guy. Put me on the throne and here's what you'll get in terms of economic uh, favours, let us say
1: there may have been some of that it's it's really impossible to be to be sure i'm not sure what france really would have had to offer uh, other than trade you know that I, I wouldn't doubt that the 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 british assumed that once they uh, were successful in reinstating uh, the bourbons to to the throne of france that that the french uh a government would be very receptive to uh, favorable trade operations uh, and, and, and I think that's uh, in fact the way things worked out in due course uh always remembering that there was always a certain amount of animosity between England and France uh, uh less so today certainly than than then but they had a long history of of not getting along so just how much uh tit for tat there was it's 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 hard to say but for whatever reason and 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 with whatever behind the scenes uh, bargaining was going on the british were steadfast in their determination to eliminate Napoleon Bonaparte, Bonaparte from the uh, throne, uh, first as first council and later as emperor. And, and by golly, they kept at it, and it, it took them 15 years, but, but it, it worked out for them.
0: I love, uh, just talking about the arrogance of King George Third. I love a quote that uh, Stephen England has in his book, Napoleon, A Political Life that uh, when Napoleon wrote that letter seeking peace after he became first consul in King George's uh, private journal he wrote it is much below my attention to have to deal with such matters (laughs)
1: well that's that is classic Uh, Steve and I were on a a television television show uh, some time ago he's a great fellow and it's a a good book and uh, that's a classic quote uh, no, no question about it and that's That's the way they saw him. I mean, the British press routinely trashed Napoleon and uh, called him, among many other things, the usurper. And as far as they were concerned, uh, he had usurped the throne. Uh, And and never mind that that there was no... uh, throne to usurp and he actually uh, uh, took over uh, as the leader of the Republic of France and stayed that way for four years and then later created a new throne. Uh, as far as the the British were concerned and, and most of the rest of Europe, Napoleon was the great usurper, the great thief of Europe. He has stolen uh, the rightful uh, throne, the rightful crown of the Bourbons and we must engage in something of a holy war to, to restore uh truth justice and the bourbon way i suppose to sort of paraphrase a uh, superman
0: and to uh quote something out of your most excellent book napoleon for dummies uh in talking about this period i like your quote where you said england would continue its quote just and defensive war Man, does that not remind you of certain terms being thrown around yet again in the modern political arena? These, these, these terminologies for justifying military action really don't change much over the millennia, do they?
1: No, they don't. Uh, the, the, the story always seems to remain the same. Uh, the, the excuses uh, remain the same, the justifications, and it's, it, it seems that we don't always learn uh, from history, this is one of the sad things for those of us who study history and teach history, is that so often the old cliche "history repeats itself" is true. Uh, people do things, and if they ever bothered to read a book, they they might uh, they <laughs> might have done something differently.
0: And as I like to tell people, uh, you know, every war I've ever studied since the dawn of time was over one thing: economics, money and you know property basically well they dress it up in anything else you like but at the end of the day it's usually about money i think
1: well you're you're right of course but you just made an interesting revelation i'm i'm i didn't realize you were that old you have been studying since the dawn of time and uh, (laughs) i'm i i was always in the impression that i was older than you but i don't think you can be older than someone who's been studying since the dawn of time
0: (laughs) and and uh to to reference uh you know napoleon being called the usurper it makes me think of wonderful uh, line that rod steiger as napoleon delivers in Sergei bondichuk's relatively enjoyable 1970 film waterloo where he says uh i found the crown of france lying in the gutter and i picked it up with my sword i always always like that line it always gives me chills
1: well that movie uh, is actually one of my favorite napoleonic movies i think that uh you know Rod Steiger. I read a review once of him that said he hams it up in the role. I think he relishes the role. He's having a great time with it. Uh, it's a it's a pretty good movie in terms of giving you an idea of what the Battle of Waterloo must have been like. I think the the uh, war footage is quite good. Uh, they do sort of take everything that Wellington ever said about Napoleon over over 15 years and cram it into to one afternoon. Uh, ne- nevertheless, it's 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 a good movie and and that is a very powerful and, and amusing scene uh, that, you, that you describe.
0: We, we should, um, you know, towards the end of the series, we should do a, a, an episode purely on Napoleonic cinema and, uh, you know, going right back to, you know, the classic black-and-white silent movie stuff all the way through to... I actually I am... I, I know I'm getting completely off the track here, but I hope the audience will forgive me. Um, you will know, of course, I'm sure, that... Um, uh, Oh damn! How how uh, Stanley Kubrick? How embarrassing that I have had a mental blank there for a second. Uh, Stanley Kubrick was. It, a it'll m-
1: only it'll only get worse <laughs> as you get
0: older. <laughs> Stanley Kubrick was a massive, massive uh, Napoleon uh, uh, um, student, and I believe uh, I have been told that he had the largest private collection, <laughs> private Napoleonic library, on the planet um, at the time that he. Passed away, but about a year ago, um, or eighteen months ago, there was a uh, an exhibition in Australia of Kubrick's memorabilia from all of his films, and they had uh, a large uh, exhibition of the preparation that he did for his Napoleon film, that was he was due to make kind of in the late sixties, early seventies, around about the same time as this uh, Bondarchuk film came out. And it, it was a box office uh, failure, and therefore Kubrick struggled to get the funding. But he had it all mapped out, plotted out. And as a huge fan of Stanley Kubrick, so I, I can just say I would have loved to have seen what he had done, what he could have done with the material. But we, as I said, we should leave that for a separate episode. Let's not get sidetracked well, too much.
1: Well, like you, I'm a big fan of, of Kubrick's, and and I, I believe that script is actually public and indeed copies have been sold on ebay uh and 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 i talked with a fellow once who who actually had a, a project to to try to to, to bring that to fruition uh, there are other uh, as long as it's movies. not
0: spielberg please god tell me it's not spielberg
1: <laughs> well i i wish i could tell you i was a f-
0: if it's spielberg what will happen is that the battle of waterloo aliens will come down and we'll I, sweep Napoleon up and take him to another planet. Uh, I, w- I wish
1: I, time. I wish I could tell you that, that I'm a good friend of Steven Spielberg's, but but uh, I can't I can't tell you that it was a, a, another producer. But ne- nevertheless. Uh, uh, <laughs> Although a, a producer who's done some very fine work, I, I, I hasten to add, but I won't talk about names at least not on this show. Uh, that we can entice you for the future. Uh, but there are other films uh, as we speak in 2006 that are that are apparently in the works. Uh, one based on Betsy Balcom's memoirs of, of Napoleon on Saint Helena, and so on. And I always say that Napoleon is. Uh, is one of these people that he just doesn't go away i mean people are fascinated with him And back in 1927, uh, Abel Gantz, you know, did his, the first of what was going to be a number of of enormous uh, epics, uh, silent film epics on Napoleon. And and he only got as far as the the first Italian campaign, which I might add is what we are supposedly discussing uh, this (laughs) evening. And we have yet to hardly mention the word Italy. uh, But that's okay. Uh, One of the things that our listeners have told us either in private emails or on postings is that they like the interaction and, and they like the fact that we will take off into different things and talk about different aspects of napoleon and not necessarily just stick to an absolute script either as to subject or as to the amount of time that we spend and However, so i hope Yes,
0: I have to go. On
1: the other in, hand,
0: in 25 minutes, so we need to get we need to make some progress today. So uh, let's let's get stuck into this. So um, as we said, Napoleon re- reached out both to the King of England and Emperor Francis of Austria, uh, seeking peace, but uh, he he basically failed. Now,
1: right, and, and 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 Napoleon really, as I said a few minutes ago. Uh, He wants to consolidate his power. He's taken power, but we have to remember, you know, looking, you know, with hindsight, we can see how it developed. But, you know, this was the the coup d'etat du jour. You know, this was the coup d'etat of the day. There had been a great deal of instability. There hadn't been a lot of actual coup d'etats as such, but there had been a lot of instability in the government. There had been a lot of changeover, uh, a a very fluctuating uh Power struggle back and forth and quite frankly the people of of, of France really weren't entirely sure just how long Napoleon would last. They wanted him to last he was enormously popular with the people which is one of the two reasons why uh, Siez and others wanted him in on the plot. The other of course being that he had control of a large part of the army. Uh, So Napoleon says okay I need to do uh something here to consolidate my power what he wanted to do and what in fact he started to do and continued throughout all this time was what we talked about last time namely his domestic reforms and particularly the bringing of a, a good sound economy to the people that was critical but another way to consolidate your power Is, and you know, and we see this in modern day too, of course, if you can get a, a war going, if you can get a victory, if you can go out there and bring glory on the battlefield, you also can maintain your popularity. And so Napoleon understood that, okay, he's got all these people out there against him. He has to go out there and fight them. He doesn't really want to, but it does offer him a good opportunity. If he can go out there and have the same kind of success that he had before, then he will really be uh, cemented into power. But the downside, of course, is if he slips, even if he loses a battle or two uh, in an overall successful campaign, an awful lot of the glow will be gone a lot of the aura will be lost so napoleon has to go back into italy back over uh in this case over the alps through the uh, great saint bernard pass and and he's going to fight the austrians again and you know what a surprise once again the austrians are in italy uh they have pushed back into the area that that napoleon had dealt with in 1796 and 1797 they're also the Austrians are, are pushing uh, into Germany uh, up on the Rhine as well, uh, where uh, General uh, Moreau will, will face them. Uh, but the area where Napoleon is going to, to be is in northern and central Italy.
0: And now and he goes this, this go march across the Alps sorry is the one that I'm sure most people will be familiar with the very famous painting by Jacques Louis David. Uh, of napoleon you know the 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 painting that's on my wall i'm sure it's probably somewhere in your house would i be correct
1: i believe as you walk into my library if you look up above the doors you'll 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 see a familiar uh, image yes
0: the napoleon astride a, a white charger that's rearing up he's you know uh dressed in gold and gilt with his finger pointed to the destination over the alps and uh the the names of uh, you know himself with the other uh, Hannibal and uh, who's the other one Charlemagne Charlemagne that had you know crossed the Alps before him carved into the <laughs> stone.
1: Well, it's classic. It's 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 a wonderful painting uh, by Jacques-Louis David, as you say. It's one of uh, I believe four, by the way, that he painted. The same image if you look in different places that you may see them, the the color of the cape will be different and there might be a few minor details. He actually painted four of them. Well, but as I think as I think you're probably heading to, that's totally bogus.
0: Well, uh, yes, but I, I wanted to ask you, I saw what I assume is one of those original four at uh, La Malmaison when I was there in uh, 2004.
1: That's correct. That's one of them.
0: That was, an. I have to tell you, that was one of the moments <laughs> in my Napoleon geekdom where I was sort of awestruck and breathtaking. I actually thought it would be in the Louvre and I'd walked around the Louvre and I'd walked around... Um, Fontainebleau and uh, looking for this and couldn't find it and then stumbled across it. You know, I remember it's amazing enough walking through La Maison, which for people who don't know is the 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 house where Napoleon lived with Josephine. And uh, I'm walking through this house, just you know, blown away, thinking to myself, "Wow, this is where he lived and w- walked and worked and Josephine entertained and the whole deal." And I come through this room just to be face to face with this massive painting of you know napoleon (laughs) astride the charger it was i was i was uh you know i had a lump in my throat i have to say
1: well i don't blame you uh to see that kind of art up close and personal uh art that reflects something about which we you know are are fascinated and and very much interested in is uh, an emotional kind of thing uh I've traveled, <coughs> excuse me, all over the world uh, chasing down uh, Napoleon, and and I've seen a lot of this kind of art, and you. You you also have to remember who painted it. I mean, Jacques Louis David, a revolutionary, uh, a person who was close eventually to Napoleon, who who has a, his own history is is, is fascinating. And and uh, to to see the result of of a master of of uh, neoclassical art and, and and imperial art like David is is really quite something.
0: And so for you know for anyone listening who is thinking about going to Paris and you're interested in Napoleon, definitely make the trek out to Malmaison. It's not easy to find. I um, had to catch uh, several buses and then got lost walking around the suburbs of outer Paris for about an hour before I stumbled across it, but uh, definitely worth the visit. Now, of course, as you were getting to before, this very, very romantic depiction of Napoleon crossing the Alps is... uh, Probably extremely far from the truth, and uh, Paul Delaroche himself, a very talented uh, painter, painted a somewhat more realistic depiction of the trek through the Alps some years later.
1: Yes, he has uh, Napoleon wearing a heavy coat. After all, it was cold; it was snowy, uh, and uh, and 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 he's going up on a mule, which was a far more sure-footed uh, way. And, and Napoleon writes to Josephine uh, uh, later on, uh, uh, on his way down the other side, that the First Council, you know, crossed the, the, the St. Bernard Pass, uh, slipping and sliding on his butt, basically. I don't recall. I don't have the exact quote uh, in, in front of me. I might be able to fight it here in a minute. But, but uh, you know, it's it's uh, it's absolutely the, the way it was, Uh Uh, Jacques-Louis David's uh, romanticism notwithstanding
0: and we should explain why napoleon chose to cross the alps i mean the austrians had taken the initiative they had won a couple of surprise victories and napoleon needed to come out of nowhere didn't he with these troops he uh, you know i was going to say earlier on when he became first consul the state of the french military again was in a fair amount of disarray they didn't have a lot of i think we we, we talked a little bit about this in the last show you know they, they were in a They didn't even know how many soldiers they had let alone how well equipped they were and he had to do some very quick reparations bringing it all together and then he had to strike like a bolt of lightning uh, against the Austrians which is why he had to attempt you know a a fairly uh, uh, difficult and uh, challenging and and somewhat uh, dangerous crossing of the Alps in the middle of winter as you say.
1: Yeah Napoleon went through the Alps on the 20th of May and to, to most people that is not necessarily the middle of winter uh but the uh, the fact is i've gone through the the alps at that time and and uh it's cold blustery and there's a lot of snow on the ground uh, most people don't even go up over the alps anymore they uh they go through the, the the tunnel that was dug a long time ago uh and 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 miss out on the excitement i found that quote by the way uh the <coughs> very famous uh uh, French novelist and historian Stendhal, who wrote extensively on Napoleon and served under Napoleon, actually uh, was in the army that went with uh, Napoleon through the Alps, and and uh, he he writes a lot of interesting things about that too. But I wrote a paper on Stendhal a few years ago, and and had this quote from Napoleon. The first council descended from the top of the Saint Bernard by sliding on the snow and watercourses and leaping over precipices. I mean that that gives you an idea, uh, first of all, about what it was like, but also, of course, what uh, what Napoleon was like. I mean, Napoleon could 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 not always take himself seriously, he could write sort of uh, amusing, humorous uh, kinds of things. At any rate, the reason he wanted to go through the great St. Bernard Pass, of course, (coughs) was that uh, he wanted to surprise the Austrians. The Austrians would not have expected anyone that time of year to be coming through the Alps. And he wanted to get, as quickly as he could, really behind the main Austrian forces. He wanted to get between them and Austria. He wanted to come in uh, from the north and go against them. And... uh They were not expecting that. In the first campaign, of course, Napoleon had come across the the southern coast and on into Italy from the southern part of of, of France. But this time he comes in uh, through the great St. Bernard, uh, which is up by Switzerland, and he comes in down through Torino, uh, the Turin area, and so on. And uh, really really takes the Austrians by surprise, which gives them, of course, a, a big advantage.
0: So, uh, obviously, I was just reading some of the uh, challenges that they were facing coming through the Alps, and one of the biggest challenges that General Maresco, who was sort of the Army's chief engineer, had written to Napoleon that they had to be careful of were avalanches, which could take out several battalions in a flash. So there were obviously risks, but it was uh, a, you know a brilliant strategy, wasn't it?
1: well it was brilliant and there were risks there was there was also uh, the fort debar which was uh, a, a serious obstacle and they had to sort of sneak past them in the the the, the late hours of the evening uh, to pull their cannons along on on sleds kind of thing uh so it was something of a risk from that standpoint uh but it was also a, a brilliant stroke because in fact uh uh, the 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 army uh, came in uh, unexpected. Uh, the Austrians that they came across were absolutely stunned by the French presence. Uh, Napoleon writes, I, I think, to use a phrase you mentioned, "We have struck like a thunderbolt. The enemy can scarcely believe it." Uh, the, the the plan worked. He he fought. Uh, against every single Austrian unit that was known to be in the area. Uh, he defeated every single one of them. On the 2nd of June in 1800, this is, uh, he entered Milan, uh, a great victor over the occupying Austrians. He was once again to the uh, Italians seen as a hero, because you got to remember the Italians were not particularly happy to have the Austrians there. Napoleon had established uh, the Cisalpine Republic and other things uh, in Italy, and, and things were actually pretty fine as far as they were concerned. Uh, Milan opens their gates, uh, you know, uh, wines and dines them uh, uh, Napoleon, uh, in fact, uh, orders the restoration of the Cisalpine Republic, and and he's just everywhere. He he's socializing. He's going to the opera. He's meeting with politicians. He has, uh, uh, as I think I describe in my my book, uh, uh, a, a very close relationship uh, with an opera singer, ma- uh, Madame uh, Giuseppini uh, Grassini. Uh, who, who uh, sings at La Scala, which is the famous and, and magnificent opera house uh, in Milan. Uh, and, uh, you know, he's, he's doing very, very uh, well. Thank you very much.
0: And the other thing that he did, obviously, was cut off the Austrian army, who were now in the southern part of Italy, from their home base in Austria. And when they figured that out, they started to move north. Napoleon started to move south. And they met at.
1: Well, they 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 met several places, but of course the the main place where where they came across each other was the Battle of Marengo. And I will ask you now, just looking at the clock, whether or not we have time to discuss Marengo, or whether you have to make an appointment because once we start Marengo, we're going to want to finish it, and it's uh, you know it'll it'll take a little bit of doing.
0: Do you think we can do it in ten minutes?
1: Uh, We could probably do it in 10 minutes,
0: yes. Okay, let's go into Marengo then.
1: Well, Napoleon is looking for the Austrians. Napoleon is moving south. The Austrians, as you say, are moving north. And they begin to converge. They begin to get pretty close to each other uh, near the town of Alessandria, uh, which is a, a... Beautiful village, by the way. Beautiful town. I've, I've been there uh, a couple, three times. And and uh, a little tiny town close to them, a little wide spot in the road, really, uh, named uh, Marengo. And and Napoleon is not quite sure exactly where the Austrians are. And, and he really doesn't want them to escape. He's convinced that if he can fight them head-on, he will win. So he sends out two units to try to cut off... Uh, any possible escape. He sends about in two different directions. He doesn't do a very good job of reconnoitering, which is one of the lessons he learns from Mirango. At any anyway, rate, one of the units he sends on June 13th, this is, by the way, uh, of 1800, he sends out uh, uh, General uh, Louis-Charles say who was a good, close friend of Napoleon. He'd been with him in Egypt, been with him for a while. And... Uh, He's going to go out and, and try to uh, uh, find out you know, where, where the Austrians are. Uh, Napoleon is close to Alessandria. He, he sends out a scout uh, to, to confirm the size of the Austrian force near Alessandria. And the scout uh, doesn't really uh, give him a very good report. Uh, and Napoleon gets some, some bad information. And so Napoleon basically thinks that at Alessandria, where he is, all he has is the Austrian rear guard. And, and that's who he'll have to deal with. Uh, much like Lodi in, in, in the previous Italian campaign, where he just had to deal with the Austrian rear guard. But the fact of the matter is, the next day on the 14th, all of a sudden, Napoleon discovers that the Austrians are attacking him and they're attacking in force they now outnumber Napoleon around 30,000 Austrians to 22,000 French now this is not good odds even for someone as good as Napoleon and so he sends out messages quickly to the other two units that I mentioned he had sent out get the hell back here folks I need your help and I need it now okay and his and noted to say, uh, uh, says, I had thought to attack Melas, who is the, the Austrian general. He has attacked me first. For God's sake, come up if you still can. <laughs> but the fact of the matter is, Desai and the other unit should have already been way too far out for any help to to be possible. And so Napoleon is apparently on his own, outnumbered, outgunned, they're low on ammunition, things are getting kind of grim. And the fighting is nasty. I mean, there's a lot of very, very close-order drills in this. There's a lot of point-blank firing and so on. And by the afternoon, by, oh, say, 3 o'clock or so in, uh, in the afternoon, the Austrians clearly have the better of the French and In fact, so much so uh, that General uh, Mela uh, is uh, tired of the, the action and he's going to leave it to his subordinates to, to, to sort of finish up. And so he actually retires from the battle, assuming that he's won a great victory. No doubt goes back to his tent to write about what a, what a wonderful job he did and why he should get another medal or something. All of a sudden... Here comes General Dessay. Two things had happened. First of all, Dessay had gone much slower than he had expected to. There had been bad roads and some disorganization and so on. So so Dessay is not as far away as Napoleon thought he would have been. Secondly, Dessay, unlike a certain Marshal Grouchy many years later, remembers the old adage, March to the sound of the guns. When he hears the sound of the heavy guns, the cannons being fired, he knows that Napoleon is fighting somebody. And whether or not it's a rear guard or the main uh, deal, he needs to be there to help Napoleon and arguably to help help his own military career. So as soon as he hears the guns, he turns around and heads back with, with, with great haste. And so all of a sudden... Uh, Desayer, rise! He goes up to Napoleon, and and, and very famously says, "Yes, sire! Uh, uh, this this battle is lost, but there is still time to win another one." And the French regroup. The fresh troops just sort of renew the vigor all up and down the lines. Uh, Napoleon, who was a master of artillery, moves a grand battery into place and just pulverizes uh, the Austrians, and and stopping them in their tracks. And now the French, uh, led by de Saino's, uh counterattack, and the Austrians uh, are routed. It's, it goes from what appeared to be a pretty decisive Austrian victory over the French to a disaster. They surrender, they sue for peace, uh, ask to be allowed to, to retire peacefully back into Austria. They will happily leave uh uh, Italy to 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 the French once again. Uh, they they lose a lot of men, but the French lose General Desaix. Desaix was the real hero. Uh, the official reports that come out later uh, will make Napoleon out the hero, although the initial reports that Napoleon sent out gave all the credit to Desaix. Uh, times change things, of course, but but Desaix was the hero. Desaix is the reason. Why we have the Napoleonic epic? Because if, if if Marengo turns into the kind of disaster for the French, that it could have been, uh, that it ended up being for the for the Austrians, it could very well be that Napoleon number one, of course, could have been killed, like the say was. Uh, number two, very possible that the bloom would be off the roads, The people back in Paris, you know, the long knives uh, uh, would be out. And it's really uh, hard to say uh, what would have happened. But the fact of the matter is, he won. He now uh, goes back in victory into and in triumph to Milan. Uh, he sends letters to Austria's Emperor Francis, starts up with peace negotiations, uh, and, and returns to Paris in July of 1800 where he is also welcomed as the invincible Bonaparte the the, the, the hero of the day twice now he has gone with odds against him and defeated the Austrians uh, and uh, uh, meanwhile Moreau uh, uh, goes up along the Rhine and destroys the the uh, Austrian army at Hohenlinden, which is a uh, German town near Munich, and on December 3rd, he wins a great victory, which quite frankly, uh, is what really finally pushes the Austrians to agree to a peace treaty. So on February 8th of 1801, Austria and France signed the Peace of Lundville. Uh, Napoleon didn't take it out too bad on the Austrians, and uh, you know, he they had to agree to the earlier Treaty of Campo Formio. Uh, they had to give uh, France <coughs> what we might call the Rhineland now, the the east bank or, or excuse me, the the left bank, which which is the west bank of the Rhine. Uh, but basically, uh, what that really does is eliminates the last continental opposition to <coughs> First Council Bonaparte. Now the only major power still officially at war with napoleon and napoleonic france is great britain and as i suspect we will discuss next time that won't last much longer either
0: indeed what a what a brilliant and fast summary of the battle of Marengo! i'm just going to wrap it up with a few quotes if i may sir
1: you certainly may but you told me you wanted me to go fast so i did (laughs) <laughs> let let the let the record show that I uh, did not uh, delay us.
0: <laughs> that it can be done.
1: That's um, right. That's right.
0: First of all, you you were saying that Dizay was the real hero of the day, and and whilst I agree that Dizay you know fought the the winning action, you know as I'm sure as we proceed past the glory years of Napoleon into some of the difficult and perhaps bad decisions that were made later on in his career, you know the man in charge needs to take the credit when things go right, just as he takes the blame when things go wrong and in and in this case it was his strategy i mean he was the architect of the crossing of the alps he was the one who told Dese to come up and and uh, join him on the battlefield
1: yes but you've got to admit that disay was already on his way back they hadn't had, the, had the say not not already started back on his own uh, it would have been too late
0: well napoleon sent him the message though come back if you still can that you quoted before he called him back to the battle
1: Oh, sure, sure, he, he did, but what I'm saying, Cameron, is that that message would have arrived too late for to Say to have gotten back in time, had to Say not already on his oh, own.
0: Come back before. on his own. He, oh, he, came back. He,
1: he, he marched to the sound of the guns, uh-huh. and so he, he was already well on his way back to, to rescue Napoleon before that message even got to him. I see. Had he he not done that, that message would have been too late. He would have arrived to discover uh, a victorious Austrian army waiting for him.
0: I always learn things from you, Mr. Markham. Now, there's a a great quote, which is in a letter that Bonaparte wrote to Talleyrand way back in 1797 that seems very apt uh, at this stage. The quote is It is only a step from victory to disaster. My experience is that in a crisis, some detail always decides the issue. And then I have uh, a wonderful letter here from Napoleon to His Majesty the Emperor and King of Austria. Obviously, Emperor Francis, his future father in law. But at this stage, he writes to him after the Battle of Marengo. I have the honour of writing to your Majesty to inform you of the desire of the French people to put an end to the war which desolates our countries. English cunning has prevented my frank and simple démarche producing its natural effect upon your Majesty's heart. There has been war between us. Thousands of Frenchmen and Austrians are no more. Thousands of bereaved families are praying that fathers, husbands and sons may return. The evil is irredeemable. No, irremediable. I can't even talk at this hour of the morning. May it at least teach us to avoid anything that might prolong hostilities. And it goes on and on. It's, it's a wonderful letter, I, but I like some of these quotes at the end. Um, I could have captured the whole of your majesty's army. I contented myself with an armistice in the hope that this would be a first step towards a world peace. That is an aim which I cherish all the more, as it might be supposed that one nurtured and brought up on war would be more hardened than I am to, evils it, to the evils it involves. At the same time, your majesty will realize that unless this armistice leads to peace, it is useless and inimical inimical, uh, inimical to the French interests. Inimical. I can't even talk. Just,
1: just how early is it there, Cameron?
0: <laughs> well, it's midday, but I haven't eaten and had any coffee yet.
1: I see. Okay.
0: The point. The point of this letter, which I won't read the whole thing, but you know, I I I do believe that Napoleon's desire for peace was sincere, as you said early on in this episode. He yes. wanted to go and rebuild France. He could have crushed the Austrians. He could have marched onto Vienna. He didn't. He sued for peace, and whilst they did sign a peace treaty, obviously, you know, it got broken yet again by the Austrians uh, not too long uh, afterwards. But. David, we have to wrap it up. It's been a pleasure as always. Thank you to our audience for listening. And we will talk next time as I guess we we talk about Napoleon becoming the emperor.
1: Yes, I think that's our topic. And again, it's always a pleasure talking with you uh, to our listeners. this time we, we sort of uh, uh, hit a, a few different uh, areas uh, at the beginning and sort of touched a little here and touched a little there, and, and now we're back into, uh, in, into the, the campaigns, and, and, and the next thing we'll talk about is how and why. Well, actually, uh, before we do the, that part, we'll probably do the Peace of Amiens. We'll talk about the actual peace, uh, brief as it was, between Great Britain and France and and talk about something woulda, coulda, shoulda if only that could have lasted imagine how the history of Europe would have been so much uh, different and, and I would argue better it didn't, but we'll talk about that next time
0: au revoir David au revoir You're on the Podcast Network. Listen, learn, evolve.